May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So everybody knows that it's not enough to get the right answer. You have to get the right answer for the right reason. Show your work, says the seventh grade math teacher. If a train leaves Chicago at 6 a.m. and another train leaves New York at 8 a.m. and they're both going 50 miles an hour, when will they pass each other? Some 12-year-olds have the processing power of a NASA computer and can snatch the answer out of the air like Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. But the math teacher is not interested in the right answer. She wants you to get the right answer for the right reason in the right way. The right answer for the wrong reason can get you into a pile of trouble. When your wife asks you, Honey, do you still think I'm pretty? You do not say, Yes, dear, I love the way time has etched the years onto your face. That's the right answer for the wrong reason. You can also get the wrong answer for the right reason. Father was helping his seven-year-old learn email, and he was looking over her shoulder as she typed her password into the computer. Her password was Mickey Minnie Goofy Pluto. All one word, no spaces. Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Pluto. And when Dad asked her why the password was so long, she said, rationally, well, Dad, Google said that the password had to be at least four characters long. <laughs> right, right reason, wrong answer. One day, Peter got the right answer for the wrong reason to one of Jesus' baffling questions. Who do people say that I am, he asked the disciples. They answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say still another prophet. And then Peter, or Jesus presses the point, who do you say that I am? And Peter instantly answers, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are God's anointed. You are God's earthly representative who will win God's kingdom back for God in this sorry old world. You are the knight whose shoulder the queen taps with her sword. You're the general the president appoints to wage fierce battle. But Peter gets the right answer for the wrong reason. For Peter, the Messiah means the restoration of Israel's long-crushed hopes. For Peter, the Christ means ridding Jerusalem of those haughty Roman soldiers prowling every street corner in the city. For Peter, the Messiah means storming the imperial palace in Rome and tossing Caesar from his lofty throne. For Peter... The Christ means Sherman's march to the sea, forage liberally, the general told his Union troops. Forage liberally. That's what Peter thinks the Messiah is. For months now, Jesus has been preaching catchy slogans of vast wisdom and hurling demons into the ocean like swine and making lame men walk and blind men see and silencing the raging winds and hurling waves like a class of unruly school children and mobilizing the rabble to action. They have never seen anything like this. He has unearthly powers. It begins, says St. Peter. Now it begins. The restoration of Israel's long-dead hopes. He gets the right answer. You are the Christ, he says. Now don't miss a small detail in this story. This story does not happen in Galilee, Jesus' home territory. This story does not happen in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews, where the Holy Temple sits. 
This story happens in Caesarea Philippi, about 40 miles northeast of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Jesus is deep in enemy territory. As you can plainly tell, Caesarea Philippi is named for two great world leaders. Caesarea for Caesar Augustus, perhaps the most powerful man the world has ever seen. And Philippi for Philip, the son of Herod the Great. And it was built to honor Caesar, a global leader, and Philip, a regional leader. People worship Caesar in a temple as a god at Caesarea Philippi. Now Peter comes along and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. This is like wearing a yellow M on a blue field in Columbus, Ohio. This is like wearing a Red Sox cap to a Yankee stadium. This is like wearing green and gold at Soldier Field. You're going to get beer dumped all over you. This will get you thrown into whatever passed for Guantanamo at Caesarea Philippi in the first century. Peter gets the right answer for the wrong reason. Jesus begins to explain what it really means to be the Christ. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the leaders and eventually killed. Now, Peter is furious. Mark tells us that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Peter took Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, aside like a mother with an unruly toddler. We don't act this way in polite company, she says. Use your pretty voice. Or to change the metaphor, Peter acts like the communications director of a political campaign. That's a negative message, he would say to his candidate. No negativity. Our poll numbers will plummet. Talk like Ronald Reagan, not like Jimmy Carter. Peter rebukes Jesus. But, of course, Jesus rebukes right back. Get thee behind me, Satan, he says to his best friend. Wow, that's harsh. But you see why, yes? Jesus means to exemplify what it means, what it really means to be the Son of God, the Christ, and Peter is getting in his way. Peter is lying down in the road to Jerusalem like a felled tree. And so Jesus says, Peter, don't get in front of me. Get behind me. Don't tell me what to do. Follow me all the way to Jerusalem. It's not enough to get the right answer. You have to get the right answer for the right reason. And Jesus means to show Peter and us too what it really means to be the Christ. Not killing, but dying. Not winning, but losing. Not storming Rome and the imperial palace to toss Caesar from his lofty throne, but carrying your cross to a skull-shaped heap of rocks called Golgotha. I'm going to tell you a story and then I'm going to quit. Not many of you will know why I'm telling you this story this morning. But some of you will, and the rest of us will catch up, so stick with me. On November 13, 1861, President Lincoln and Secretary of State William Seward called on George Meade McClellan in the general's home in Washington. Two weeks before, President Lincoln had named George McClellan as Commander-in-Chief of all Union armies, 
and the president was delighted to have such a capable soldier in charge of his troops. George McClellan was a wunderkind. He hailed from a prominent Philadelphia family. He'd been second in his class at West Point, even though he was two years younger than his classmates. He was president of a railroad at the age of 30, and now he was the youngest and biggest general in the Union troops. He was famous and beloved across the northern states. They called him the young Napoleon. But all of this privilege and talent and opportunity went to his head, and he gained an insufferable superiority complex. George McClellan loathed President Lincoln and disparaged his intelligence in letters to his wife and in comments to his subordinates. On various occasions, he called the president an idiot, a baboon, and a gorilla. So on November 13, 1861, the President and the Secretary of State go to call on George McClellan to find out why he isn't using the largest and best-equipped army in the world to chase down a foe which may be about half his size. And when the President gets to General McClellan's house, a servant tells him that the General is at a wedding party and may be back late that night, but the President can wait. So there are the President and the Secretary of State waiting in George McClellan's parlor. An hour goes by and finally the President finds a servant and says, will the General be home soon? And the servant says, the General came back home some time ago. He was not feeling well, so he went straight to bed. The President and the Secretary of State sitting in his parlor. William Seward is apoplectic. He wants to demote the general to a cavalry stable boy on the spot. But President Lincoln says, let it pass, Mr. Seward. I will hold his horse for him if he will get me a victory. President Lincoln may have been the most egoless individual America has ever seen. Now, fast forward three years to the summer of 1864. George McClellan is long gone from his command, fired for failing to use this gigantic army. The war is going horribly for the Union. Their huge and bristling armies keep getting demolished by smaller, underfed, undergunned, unshod Confederate troops. In the summer of 1864, President Lincoln is the most loathed person on the planet. No president before or since has been as unpopular as Abraham Lincoln in the summer of 1864. The 1864 presidential elections, of course, will occur on November 8 of that year. And many of you will know who his Democratic opponent will be in November. George McClellan. And you know where the Democratic Convention was held in 1864? In Chicago, the president's home state, where the Democrats are calling the war a total failure and preparing to negotiate with the Confederacy, which will mean, of course, a perpetuation of slavery. The president is all but certain that he will lose this election to his Democratic nemesis. Barack Obama had a better chance of winning Alabama in the last presidential election than Abraham Lincoln had of defeating George McClellan in the 1864 presidential election. So in August, Abe and Mary start packing boxes for an early exit 
from the White House in March. And then, of course, a remarkable thing happens. General Sherman raises an American flag up the flagpole in front of City Hall in Atlanta, Georgia. And you cannot exaggerate the impact of this victory. President Lincoln wins re-election by a landslide on November 8. And now you know why I'm talking about this this morning. He gets a chance by the skin of his teeth to give his second inaugural address. 150 years ago, this coming Wednesday, March 4, 1865. And we take this for granted these days. Second inaugural addresses. America has re-elected its last three presidents so that President Clinton, President Bush, and President Obama have all had a chance to give second inaugural addresses, but it's actually not all that common. 43 men have served as President of the United States, but only 17 of them have given a second inaugural address. And they call Lincoln's second inaugural his greatest speech. I don't know about that. Gettysburg is pretty good too. I don't know if it's his greatest speech, but it is his most scriptural and his most theological. The president wants to say that God often uses cruel calvaries to accomplish God's purposes. Sometimes divine justice is achieved only by bloodshed. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. On the cusp of this great Union victory, the end of the war is exactly 35 days away. 35 days. On the cusp of this victory, Mr. Lincoln, reading his Bible, redefines the war and its meaning. It is not a great victory for the North, he says. It is a punishment by God, by God's hand on North and South alike, for the ancient scourge of slavery. While he's speaking this, Sherman is marching to the sea from Atlanta. He is putting Sherman's neckties around every tree in that Georgian forest. Railroad ties twisted around trees, Sherman's neckties. And President Lincoln is describing this not as a triumph, but as retribution for the ills of North and South alike. His egolessness, his humility, his astute theological reading of history is the reason Alabama and Massachusetts are still in the same country. At the White House after the speech, President Lincoln asked his friend Frederick Douglass what he thought about it, and Mr. Douglass responded, Mr. President, that was a sacred effort. 
Mr. Douglas always said it sounded more like a sermon than like a state speech. And I guess it was. Take up your cross, said Jesus to Peter after Peter got the right answer for the wrong reason. If any want to follow me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.